Well, church, welcome to the party and welcome to Northview. And can we just give a shout out to all of our creative teams and all the teams that make week after week happen here at Northview. I don't know where we filmed all these videos, but I do want to say thank you to whoever allowed us to trash their house over the past three weeks with some of these remodeling videos. If you are new to Northview, we're one church meeting across 12 different locations. And for those of you in the room, and we are packed today, can you just join me in welcoming those online and those at our other campuses today? Outstanding. We're glad you're with us. And you are, well, you're coming in at the end of the book. We are in a three-week series called Interior Design, where we are all trying to make the most of our personal space. And so if you missed out on weeks one and two, you can check those out online. But what we are addressing in this series are the internal faculties that God has hardwired us with. I'm convinced that most of our personal and even social issues in the world stem from internal issues, not external issues. There are things that are deep-rooted within every single one of us, and a lot of times they, they get projected out into the world, and, and they often serve to perpetuate some of the issues that we face. And so it is learning to make the most of our internal space. Scripture places a tremendous emph emphasis on the area of the mind, the heart, and the soul. Scripture says that you and I are to love the Lord our God with all of our mind, with all of our heart, and with all of our soul. And it's learning to steward those areas well. In week one, we talked about what comes into the mind. Well, it comes out through your life. Week two, we talked about the heart and feelings. And, and last week kind of felt like group therapy for all of us, right? You want to have a, just a vulnerability hangover the next day? Like we just all leaned into our feelings. We talked about emotions come with motion. If you're not careful, your life can be driven in the direction of undesirable destinations. And you have to learn to steward your feelings well. And today we are, well, we're going to talk about the heftier of the three. So there's the mind, there's the heart, and today we're talking about the soul. And if you are new to maybe Northview or maybe you're new to the Christian, you know, faith in this conversation, you should know our God has cornered the market on the soul game. I mean, there is no comparison. There is no second option. The gospel of Jesus Christ and the security found in him and him alone is undeniably the best option. There is no philosophy or world religion that can stand the test of time and provide for you, for your soul, what your soul desperately needs. Our God has cornered the market. And it makes me think of these. Funyuns. Show of hands if you are a Funyun fan. We've got some Funyun fans. Have you ever been amazed how there are not other versions or other brands of Funyuns? Like I was looking up some statistics because this is what pastors do. And I was finding that Lay's potato chips has 200 different kinds of potato chips. 200 and not a single Funyun option. It's as if they looked at the Funyuns and they're like, they win. Like, they cornered the market, they sealed the deal, and they win. And I know what you're thinking, this is a really random illustration. And that's on purpose. Because the next time you see one of these bags, and the next time you're at a game, possibly tonight, and you go to have a bite of a Funyun, you're going to think to yourself, why did he have to share that annoying illustration? Because now all I think about is how my God has cornered the game on the soul conversation. Our God and the gospel of Jesus Christ corners the market. Nothing can provide for you and your soul what the gospel truly can. 
And so it is learning to lean into your relationship with Christ. And some of you, you're not a Christian. And my prayer is by the end of today's message, maybe you would find yourself leaning into the possibility that there's a God in heaven who's for you, who loves you, who's done the unthinkable on behalf of you. And maybe, just maybe, you'll surrender your life to him. But as we talk about the soul, you have to understand the soft stuff is the hard stuff. You ever found this to be the case in your relationships? Things like peace, harmony, vulnerability, trust, the stuff that we would object to and say, well, that's just so touchy-feely, that's so soft. Well, the soft stuff, it is the hard stuff. And when it comes to caring for your soul, well, there is no greater task that comes with more, I don't know, sometimes pressure or even just complexity than caring for your soul. This is hard stuff. And it is learning, again, to make the most of your personal space. You know, in Scripture, there's a man by the name of David, and Scripture recognizes him as the most godliest man in the Bible. He was a godly man, and he was someone who had a close-knit relationship with God. And he says this in Psalms chapter 42. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? You ever prayed something like that? You ever acknowledged the fact that there's something deep-rooted in you, and it informs you that something's off? Why so downcast? With everything going on in the world and everything taking place around me, I can't ignore the agitation within me. Something is off. You know, my kids, I have four of them, and one of my favorite seasons with my kids was when they were all toddlers. I feel like the toddler stage gets bad press. I love having a toddler. I love the spontaneity and the energy that they bring. I love how they keep you on your toes and how they have a wild imagination. I love how they speak with broken English. And I love everything about a toddler, except when a toddler throws a tantrum. And why do toddlers throw tantrums? Because they lack the ability and the communication handle to articulate their desires, their wants, and their feelings. The reason why a toddler throws a tantrum is because they can't explain what they want and what they feel. And when it comes to the world that we live in, I can't help but look at humanity as a whole as one big toddler. I love humanity. I think there's so much good deep-seated in each and every one of our lives. And we all disagree on so many things. But the one thing we all disagree uh, on is there is something off. Have you found that to be the case? And it seems to me that much of what has taken place in the world and so many of the conversations and the different expressions that you see out there are humanity throwing a tantrum because they lack the ability to articulate and to communicate the desires, the wants, and what is taking place within them. Something is off. You ever found that to be the case? You ever looked at life and thought, something's off. And I don't know how to explain it. And I don't know if I have the vocabulary to articulate it. But I know that I know that I know something isn't right. That's what David is praying. He's saying, why so downcast is my soul? But then 20 chapters later, from chapter 42 to chapter 62, he says this. Truly, my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from him. Truly. My soul, it finds rest in God. And my salvation, it comes from him. 
my agenda in today's message and my prayer is to possibly move some of you from chapter 42 to chapter 62. To move some of you from this nagging agitation, why so downcast is my soul, to this beautiful discovery, my soul finds rest in you. I recently read a story of this picture-perfect Colorado town, nestled right there in the mountains, between some, mount, uh, some mountains right in the valley, and running right through this town was this beautiful river, crystal clear water. The entire town was set up around the river. Restaurants and families would allow their kids to swim in the river. People would fish in the river. Wildlife would gather around the river. It was a beautiful space. And there was this individual in his late 70s, straight out of high school. He was hired at the age of 18 to be the town's river keeper. For years, he served in this role, and, and no one really knew what he did. Over time, those who hired him passed away or moved out of town, and no one really seen him at work throughout the days. Rumor was he'd spend his time in the mountains, and apparently he would spend his time up there pulling sticks out of the water. Eventually, a city council meeting took place, and they decided to do away with the position. Hey, maybe we could repurpose these funds, and, and maybe we could allocate them to the budget differently. And so they terminated the position of riverkeeper. A couple years go by, and before you know it, this crystal clear water, water becomes murky. The place where families used to let their kids swim in, now no one's going into the water. People stopped fishing, and now you see fish dying on the side. And the wildlife that used to gather in that town, well, they started migrating elsewhere. And I think you get what I'm saying about this, is you are the river keeper to your soul. Eventually, the, sound, the, the city council got together and they said, hey, maybe we should hire him back. And they brought him back in, and as quickly as things turned for the bad, things turned for the good. And before you knew it, the, the life of the town that centered around this river, it came back to life. You are the river keeper of your soul. And if you're not careful, the things that flow through your mind and down through your heart will end up in your soul. And you'll end up with some murky waters that taint the wellspring of life that your being centers around. This is hefty stuff. And it's complicated stuff. And I think what happens is, is we overlook it. And we're falling into a pattern in our world where we are addressing symptoms over sickness. You ever found that to be the case? It's like your kid getting a fever and you shoving their head in the freezer. It's a bad approach to the illness. I'm a hypochondriac and I tend to Google my symptoms, which is really problematic. WebMD will have you thinking you're dying tomorrow. But sometimes we, we focus on the symptoms, not the sickness. And we overlook, hey, what we're looking at is the byproduct of a deeper issue. And guys, here's the deal. That which is most valuable is most vulnerable. That which is most valuable is most vulnerable. And if you're not careful, the thoughts, the feelings, well, they begin to rattle around in the depths of your being. And they shake you to your core. And they create an agitation within the depths of your soul. That which is most valuable is most vulnerable. And you have to steward it well. And you have to make the most of your personal space. I find that when it comes to the soul, all Christians agree, 
Well, the soul is important. Every single one of us, if we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we believe that the soul is really and extremely important. But if you were to get 10 Christians together and you were to say, hey, everyone take out a pen and write down your definition of the soul, well, there's a good chance that you'd get 10 different definitions. A lot of people reduce the soul to thoughts and feelings, and that's just certainly not the case. But guys, here's the deal. If you can't explain it, you can't maintain it. So there's this part to us that's super important, but because we don't understand it, we don't know how to make the most of it. If you can't explain it, well, then you can't maintain it. I feel passionate about defending the faith, and at times, I am in constant debates with people who don't believe what we believe, and that's okay. I believe you can be involved in a discussion that doesn't disrespect other people, but I stand confidently believing in this God that we serve. And a lot of times, the debate centers around the soul. And I've asked an individual, hey, do you have a kid? Yeah, yeah, I got a kid. Okay, so if you were to have to amputate your child's arm, and this is not meant to be a gross illustration, but track with me. If you had to amputate your child's arm, is that still your child? Well, duh, that's a dumb question. Of course it's still my child. Well, what if you had to amputate the leg as well? So now your kid's missing an arm and a leg. Still your child? Absolutely. Well, what if your kid was in a car accident and they were paralyzed for the rest of their life? Is that still your child? Yes. Well, what if that car accident came with some brain trauma and it altered their personality? Still your child? Again, yes. Well, what if your kid had to have a heart transplant and they literally got a brand new heart placed inside them? Still your child. And again, the conversation feels redundant. Yes, you're asking dumb questions. And the reality is, is every single one of us acknowledges. I don't know how to explain it. And maybe I lack the vocabulary to articulate it. But there is something deep within that individual and my heart gravitates towards it. Something deep within me connects with something deep within them. And it's not anything about the limbs or the ability or the personality or the organs. It's, well, it must be the soul. It must be the soul. We exist as followers of Christ to get this message out there that the most important thing and the thing that we treasure in each other is the thing that our God parted the skies for and took the ultimate risk on humanity and he sent his one and only son to rescue and to redeem and to secure for all eternity the souls of humanity. I love this about our God because at the end of the day, what you treasure most in your child and what you treasure most and the people you care about the most is the one thing God says, hey, I'm gonna secure that for you. See, we go to God with all these prayers, all these desires and all these wants, but what I've discovered is God gives us exactly what we would wish for if we knew what he currently knows. Someone say, run it back. God gives us exactly what we would wish for if we knew what he currently knows. He knows that the essence of our being, it's our soul. And guys, this is so important. Jesus spoke often about it. He said this, come to me, which what a statement. Because initially, Jesus came to us. 
And my question for you is which is more shocking? That the savior of the world, the one and only begotten son, the only perfect human being to ever step foot on our planet came to us? Or is it more shocking that we're unwilling to come to him? This is really perplexing. And he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. And check this out. And I, I will give you rest. He goes on to tell us, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Yoke being my teachings, my principles, my commands, my plan for your life. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble. God's not trying to be hard on you, but he is hard on the things that are hard on you. Church, God is not trying to be hard on you. He's not some cosmic killjoy, but he is hard on the things that are hard on you, and he is hard on the things that are disrupting your soul and robbing you of your purpose, stealing your, your peace, and the things that are tainting your identity. Come to me, all who are weary, I'm humble and gentle and in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And he follows it with this statement, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Some of you, you're, you're carrying burdens. Come, some of you, you're slugging it out in life, and you are not taking full access to the benefit and the strength and the supernatural provision that comes with leaning into your relationship with Christ. See, a lot of people, they just approach their relationship with Christ as if it's fire insurance. It's my meal ticket to heaven. So when I die, I die with him, meaning I get to resurrect with him as well. But guys, here's the deal. Jesus came so that we might live through him, not just die with him. Jesus came not so that we, so that we may live through him, not so that we may just die with him. In other words, the gospel and what Jesus provides for us just doesn't get us to heaven. It gets heaven through us here and now. This is an amazing thing. And Jesus says, all who come to me, you find rest for your souls. Do you find that there are certain places, certain groups of people that you can just rest around? Like I find that whenever we go back to visit my parents or Kristen's parents, there's something about being in those spaces that just comes with a different level of relaxation. I'm so excited to see everybody, but then I find myself on the couch, passed out. Right? Anyone else, you go home for Thanksgiving and you just take naps the entire weekend? Because there's something about true acceptance and true security that provides rest. But the beauty of the gospel is you don't have to cash in your PTO and you don't have to travel to some destination all to experience the rest provided by our Savior. Because true rest isn't found in a place. True rest is found in a person. And Scripture says, in this relationship with Christ, you and I experience a peace that surpasses understanding. You ever heard that iconic verse? A peace that surpasses understanding. Which the skeptic in the room will be like, Wait a second, explain that. And that's the problem. Our pride wells up and you can't experience a peace that surpasses understanding if you're not humble enough to allow it to surpass your understanding. Guys, there's things in this relationship with Christ that a couple theology degrees in and with my best attempt, I just can't articulate it. I don't know how to explain the beautiful byproducts that come with anchoring your life to this savior. 
But there's something refreshing, something life-altering, something undeniable that takes place in the depths of your soul. And it's this replenishment and this rest. Because more than your family can provide, in Christ we find unconditional, perfecting acceptance and security. It's amazing. And so it's recognizing resisting Jesus is resisting arrest. Guys, I worked hard on that one. <laughs> That's pretty good. Resisting Jesus is resisting arrest. And so it is learning, hey, I need to lean into this relationship because the agitation in my soul is a real thing. And this is the only one who can truly, really make a difference in that space. I think it's learning to recognize the difference between thriving and striving. You can thrive in this world and you can live a life of significance and you can live a life of impact and success. And you can do it out of balance and out of the full expression of who you are and what God is doing in your life. But as followers of Christ, we fall into the world's patterns of trying to do too much. Guys, as followers of Christ, we don't force it. We faith it. We recognize who we are and who we're not. And we're at peace with that. And we develop a, a holy contentment that trusts in God's work and his plan for our life. I can thrive without having to overdo it and spread myself thin. Makes me think of a time my son Cannon learned to ride a bike. Came with a couple crashes, which were the dad and mom who just pushed him and said, go, go, right? And so he wiped out a couple times, but eventually he got it. And he loved it. Every day he wanted to ride his bike, and within a week, we went for a long family bike ride. In fact, the final total mileage of the bike ride was six miles. That's a long ride for a little guy. And there wasn't a lot of elevation, but still, six miles for a little guy, that's a long ride. We got to the end, and we were heading home, and you could tell he was gassed. And I'll never forget, slowing down, he said, Dad... I'm so lazy right now. <laughs> I said, buddy, you're not lazy. You're tired. You're not lazy. You're tired. And I feel pressed upon my heart. And all week as I was praying about this message, some of you, you're flat out exhausted. And for whatever reason, you've started attaching shame to your fatigue. I'm just tired I'm fatigued, and now I'm starting to feel bad about feeling bad. And it is learning to just find rest in your Savior rather than attaching shame to your fatigue. But this is what we do. We, we try to force the issue because something in our mind is constantly nagging at us. You're not enough. You're not enough. You're not enough. Yet simultaneously, something else in us tells us we were made for more. You were made for more. And how do you manage that tension? Well, it creates some complications. Ever found that you just struggle with feelings of inadequacy? I mean, sometimes it's just like, I don't know. I feel like I'm coming up short in a lot of areas. And I think we struggle with inadequacy for three reasons. And the first is unfair criticism. Ever just had people say mean things about you, inaccurate things about you, unfair things about you? And what happens is, if you're not careful, you allow that criticism to land in your heart. For me, 
it makes me think of flying. Now, I don't know what it's like for you, but when I sense any turbulation, turbulence on a plane, I go dark quickly. Anyone else, you go dark when you experience turbulence on a plane? Like, I think we're going down. And I have learned to pay attention to the flight attendants. Look, if she's not nervous, I'm not nervous. But the moment homegirl buckles up and she starts praying, I'm scared. You have to learn to check your flight attendants. See, what happens is, is, and this is a pattern, and the next generation, you guys gotta listen to me on this because this is a struggle of ours. We have this obsession with autonomy that desires to arrive at a place that comes without accountability, where we don't have to give people access and authority to speak into our lives. And guys, that is really problematic. There's not a single one of us in the room who can reach our God-given potential without godly, wise individuals who care deeply about us speaking into our life and fortifying the call that's upon each of us. And it is giving people access and authority because there is gonna come times where you have unfair criticism projected onto you and you need to look to your flight attendants, the wise, the godly, those who know you well and care deeply about you. And if they're not concerned and they dismiss it, well, you need to move on from it. Unfair criticism is a problem. In addition to that, unrealistic compliments are also a problem. In the same way criticism can go to your heart, flattery can go to your head. Before you know it, you're gassed up and you start operating with an arrogance rather than a true and healthy confidence. The problem with arrogance is it may fool some, but deep inside you know the truth. And suddenly you are trying to live up to these unrealistic compliments that people have projected onto you and deep within you develops this imposter complex. What are they gonna do? They're gonna be so disappointed when they discover I'm not as good as they think I am. I remember a time at our former church, individual came up to me and he said, Pastor CJ, you are the best preacher in the world. You can laugh at that. I thought to myself, my goodness, this guy is yet to discover the internet. <laughs> like that is such an exaggerated statement. And if we're not careful, we allow people to place pressure on us in the flattery that they give us. It's just developing an accurate and true humility and living confident and content with who you are and how God made you. So it's unrealistic compliments. And lastly, unwise comparisons. Be careful you don't fall into a comparison trap. There is no win in comparison. My dad used to figure out ways to give really sentimental, inspirational speaks, uh, speeches to my siblings and I. I grew up in a house with wonderful parents and my dad would sell out to these talks. There was a season in my life where I was just battling some insecurity. I'm about eight years old. My speech impediment's getting the best of me. I'm trying to be like others, and it's coming with some compromise. I'll never forget my dad came in the room as if he was a coach in a locker room. And he said, son, you can't send an eagle to duck school. <laughs> yeah, it's a weird thing to say. I looked at him perplexed, and this is what he followed it up with. Why are you out there quacking? When you were made to soar. And listen, it's corny. But as an eight-year-old, it landed. And even now as a 37-year-old, 
I still find myself thinking back to that conversation with my dad. Hey, you be you. You don't try to be anyone else. And don't fall into a pattern of rejecting your uniqueness and the divine thumbprint that is on your life. We take on these tendencies. Jesus also told us this about our soul. He said, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Check out this question. Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Have you ever found that people nowadays will exchange anything for their soul? They'll forfeit their identity, their peace, their relationship, their purpose for nothing. What good is it? And it is learning to understand that your soul is the most important thing about you. Recently, I took my boys up to Boyne Mountain, Michigan to go skiing. We left the girls at home specifically to leave mom at home. My boys are daredevils and they are fearless. Mom would have had a heart attack the entire weekend. So we are there and just having a blast. In fact, this is my eight-year-old, Miles Griffin, and check out how, how gnarly this is. Boom! This is where mom would have panicked. <laughs> Nailed it, right? It was so awesome. And so the whole week, I'm, I'm getting to teach them how to ski. And the one talking point that I keep emphasizing, boys, the key to stopping is turning. If you can learn to turn, you can ski any hill. And I'm trying to teach them to turn. We get to a point where, well, everyone feels confident. All right, boys, we're going to the top. We're gonna hit the big one. If you've ever been to Boyne Mountain, coming right down the center, the biggest run is called Victor Run. So we get to the top, and I tell my boys, again, remember, the key to stopping is turning. And if you can turn, you can manage your speed. And before I could finish what I was saying, both of them push off and just go into a full tuck. <laughs> like they had already discussed among themselves, this is a race. We're ignoring dad which some of you have kids who ignore you as well. Before I knew it, I too was pushing down in a full tuck, panicking, screaming, praying. I mean, I was pulling out all the spiritual stops. I even started praying in tongues. Lord, <laughs> save my kid, right? They were flying down this hill. And at the end, it was like a photo finish. They both arrived at the same time, hands go up at the same time, and in just awesome fashion. They came to a stop, slid sideways, sprayed everyone waiting in line for the ski lift with snow. It was amazing. So amazing, I went and talked to one of the employees and I said, hey, I need the slope sign. Like I don't ever wanna forget this moment. It was just so exhilarating. Yeah, terrifying. I don't think I wanna do it again. But man, I'll never forget that moment with me and my boys going full speed down Victor Slope. It was a great moment. As we were kind of celebrating and laughing, this lady walked over and she said, hey, you're not allowed to do that. I said, listen, lady, I'm about to have a similar conversation. But that was quite a moment. And as I was thinking about this, I felt like the Lord say, and that there is religion. That's what happens in religion. I think what happens is, is we gather together as followers of Christ. And some people are experiencing for the first time a thrill of hope. 
this just unexplainable rush that comes with falling into grace. And yeah, they don't have it fully figured out. And yeah, there's some things that they need to learn. And sometimes there's a self-righteousness that wells up among people that says, hey, you can't do that. And sure, at some point we're gonna have the conversation. But can you just acknowledge what God is doing in that person's life? It's amazing. We'll get there. But this is a cool moment. We would go to the this restaurant every night while we were out there. It was called the Trophy Room. And this is the three of us. We were out there for three nights. Every night we went to the Trophy Room. I do this thing with my kids where we do a snake draft. You pick a topic and everyone gets to go around in order of how it is selected for the draft and you get to pick your top three or whoever is remaining in the topic. So it might say, hey, today we're doing superheroes. So someone might end up with Batman and Captain Marvel and Iron Man. And someone else might end up with Thor, Hulk, and, you know, whoever. And so then at the end, you're debating who has the best top three. So we're sitting down to dinner and we say, okay, boys, let's go with favorite destination or places you want to visit in the world. Top three places you want to visit in the world. And I got to go first in the draft. So I said, all right, I want to go to Jerusalem. I want to walk where Jesus walked. I've heard that visiting the Holy Lands, it just brings the Bible to life. I want to go to the Holy Lands. Before I could finish, Cannon, who had the second pick, was like, ooh, I got mine, I got mine, I know what mine is. I said, all right, Cannon, what is yours? He said, I want to go to Africa. I want to go on a safari. I want to see rhinos and giraffes and elephants. I'm going to Africa on a safari. And before he could finish, Miles was like, ooh, I got my first pick, I got my first pick. I said, Miles, where do you want to go? He said, I want to go to Illinois. (laughs) I said, listen, we don't cuss in this house. (laughs) I want to go to Illinois. Two-year difference. A 10-year-old and an 8-year-old. One of them wants to go on a safari in Africa. And the other wants to go to Illinois. Some of you, you're new to the faith, and you have no idea the experiences you could have with God. You have no idea the places he could take you, the things he could do in your relationships. And like a kid wishing for Illinois, God sits back with a smile on his face. Just you wait. Don't settle Don't forfeit your soul and all that God could do for secondary matters. Don't settle. And here's what I've discovered in my own life. Exchanging peace for progress and prosperity, it's not a good exchange. Exchanging peace for progress and prosperity is not a good exchange. And even though it's recognizing, hey, progress and prosperity, they're not bad things. But too much of a good thing can become a challenge. I've discovered in my own life, just because you're doing good doesn't mean you're doing good. Some of my hardest moments where I have just been parched within my soul are moments that I've been serving as a pastor. Doing good, but not doing good. You ever been there? There was a time I was an executive pastor at a large church down south, and I was on the teaching team, and I oversaw all of our campuses. Church was about 10,000 people and came with a lot of pressure, and I was a young leader trying to figure it out. And I got out of balance. 
one day I got, received an email and it came with some criticism, which kind of comes with the position. But the different thing about this email is it came from my wife. That's how you know it's bad. When your wife has to email you to get your attention. Now I remember writing in my journal that day, the pace at which I was doing the work of God was killing the work of God in me. Just because you're doing good doesn't mean you'll always be doing good. So I've had to learn, and maybe you can learn from me, your life moves to a better place when you move at a sustainable pace. Your life, it moves to a better place when you move at a sustainable pace. It's living with contentment. It's developing balance. And it's keeping the main thing the main thing in your life. So if I were you, the two questions I would ask when it comes to stewarding my life is one, what do I need to subtract? And two, what do I need to add? What do I need to subtract? And what do I need to add? Guys, your soul is so important. And it is the thing that God cares deeply about. And it's the thing that we bump into right away in the story of creation. In fact, if you go to the Bible in Genesis chapter one, it says, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeliness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And then check out this statement, which is so repetitive. It's almost bad grammar. It's clunky. He says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Guys, I discovered that scripture is repetitive in the areas we need to be reminded. God created them, and God created you. See, when it comes to the soul, the thing that we can't articulate is there is a divine genetic in our life that resembles our heavenly father. In some way, every single one of us looks like our dad. I have four kids, and not a single one of them is exactly like me. But every single one of them, well, they're kind of like me. You know, it says this in chapter 2, verse 7. It says, God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And check this out. And man became a living soul. You're not just a self. You're a soul. And if you overlook the soul, you'll become self-centered. And that comes with a whole array of issues. But every single one of us, well, we're children of God. Every single one of us have his thumbprint upon our life. And genetically, we all carry a bit of the divine in us. This is amazing stuff. I mean, we're 38 verses into scripture. And what do we discover about our God? He likes to work with his hands and play in the dirt. That is such a precious thing. 38, I mean, libraries upon libraries, books have been written about our God, but 38 sentences in to the Holy Scriptures, we find that he works with his hands and he plays in the dirt. How many of you like to work with your hands? Show of hands. Like to work with your hands? How many of you like to garden and play in the dirt? Yeah, you're like your dad. You're like your dad. And here's the thing. You'll never know what to do with a part of God apart from God. 
You'll run around confused. You'll run around trying to make sense of these impulses in your life and this beauty and this dignity and this just essence that you carry. And you'll be confused and you'll fall into the culture's pattern of trying to fill the void or make sense of something that is hard to explain because you're trying to do it apart from God. You'll never know what to do with a part of God apart from God. You ever find yourself just amazed by people admiring others? Like, I love humanity. I just think people are the coolest thing on the planet. And I love the differences in all of us. Like, I don't know about you, but I love people who have a good laugh. There's just something about being around someone who just has one of those gregarious, contagious laughs. And it makes me think, what was it like for the first person on planet Earth to laugh? Two cavemen hanging out, and one of them went, Ugh. <laughs> And the other thought, you should keep doing that. We love people who laugh. Or don't you love people who like to play games? Like today, we're all going to gather to watch a game. And there was a point in human history where games didn't exist. And then someone picked up a stick and threw it at someone else. And they caught it. And they're like, ooh, let's see if we can do it again. And the first game was initiated. You want know to thankful for doctors? I mean, at some point, humanity looked upon illness and sickness. And for the first time, someone had an impulse within them that said, I think I'm supposed to help heal that. I love mechanics and individuals who are problem solvers and solution driven. I love risk takers. I envy those individuals because I'm a bit of a scaredy cat. I mean, think about the per first person to ever go skydiving. I mean, a group of people got together and like, hey, can you imagine jumping out of a plane? And some guy put his donut down and was like, I'll do it. Amazing. We were recently by the ocean. My wife can surf. The rest of us are trying to figure it out. We're standing there watching people surf. And I just found myself thinking, what is it in humanity that tells us, I think I could stand upon the waves? Humanity is so beautiful. And here's the thing, we're, we're falling into culture's patterns. It, it's, it's so disappointing, and it's the thing that grips my heart the most, is we're starting to act like culture. And the problem is, is when we stop appreciating our differences, we start accelerating more divisions. Well, I don't want to join a life group. No one in that group is like me. Exactly. Because you weren't meant to live in an echo chamber of your opinions, but to live connected to the diverse and beautiful body of Christ where individuals all reflect and echo a maker who is outstanding and magnificent. And you look like your dad and I look like my dad. It's an amazing stuff. Church, here's the thing. When you accepted him as your heavenly father, you accepted the rest of us as siblings. When you accepted him as your heavenly father, you accepted the rest of us as siblings. 
And my goodness, I got some wild siblings. I got a brother. I mean, he's saved. He might be living in a dorm room in heaven, but he's going to make it. But man, I love him. What happens is, is we stop celebrating, reinforcing, acknowledging, and appreciating the divine thumbprint on others' lives. Hey, that one's a healer, and that one's a risk taker, and that one's a problem solver, and that one's just loving and caring, and we stop over, we start overlooking these things. And we fall into culture's patterns where we're asking the question, which is it? To have or to have? And this is what we're doing. Where we have bought into a lie that thinks unity is uniformity. No, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're all different, but we all have the same dad. We're all different points in our development and different journeys. But what makes this family so beautiful is we cherish, we respect, we appreciate, and we celebrate the divine genetic and thumbprint upon each of our lives. That's the soul. And church, I think we'll take our community by storm if we stop focusing on having each other, H-A-L-V-I-N-G, and we just start focusing on having each other, H-A-V-I-N-G. This is family, and our dad is awesome, and you're like him, and I'm like him. Can we just celebrate the goodness of our God? At this time, I'm going to pass it back to our campuses, and our campus pastors are going to lead this next moment. We've had individuals giving their life to Christ all weekend. And I'd love it if you guys would just stand to your feet and pray with me. Your soul, it matters. And let's be a church that fights and advocates for the souls of everybody. Let's be a church that engages in the mission of advancing the kingdom of God. This church isn't a cruise ship. It's a battleship. Let's engage because the times are pressing. Amen. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Dear Heavenly Father, God, I just thank you for the goodness of who you are. The fact that our soul rests and abides in you and that you are our creator and you have cornered the market on the most important area of our being. With heads bowed and eyes closed, no one looking around, but if you're new, to the faith and you've yet to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you want true and unconditional acceptance and security to have peace within your heart, a purpose for living and a home in heaven. On the count of three, I just want you to slip your hand up. He's not ashamed of you. Don't be ashamed of him. One, two, three. Come on, all across this room, slip, slip those hands up. Outstanding. I see the three hands in the balcony. I see your hand in the back. Thank you. Unbelievable. Anyone else? Awesome. Sir, I see your hand in the back. Sir, I see your hand as well. So many hands. How about in the second balcony? Anyone else? This is why we exist as a church, to advocate, to reinforce the souls of individuals who are loved dearly by our Heavenly Father. So many hands. I was unable to count, but would you just... 
pray this silently after me to yourself. Say, Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your son to die on a cross for my sin. Today I ask for your forgiveness and I receive your grace. And I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Today I choose to live for you for the rest of my life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Church.